chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father, He is the gardener, or the vine dresser. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Then when I read through the passage, when I get to verse 3, it feels as though verse 3 is out of place. So notice it says, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. I thought we were talking about vines and pruning. Well, it just so happens that in the Greek, the word there for clean is the same root. It's essentially the same word as the word prune. There's probably a play on words here. You're already clean pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me, and I will abide in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must abide in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is my, to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Uh, you notice the strange sermon title, or somewhat strange sermon title there. How does this Jesus as the vine relate to the human soul? Here's where I want to begin. What is a soul? What is a human soul? That is not an easy question to answer. You know, a soul is not something that you can put under a microscope and examine it or study it in that way. But at any given moment, your soul is what is running your lives, and that's typically not the way we think of it. We, th- we think in terms of our external circumstances or our uh, our feelings or our thoughts, all of that, but it's, it's not our thoughts or feelings. It's our souls that are, that are running our lives. Um, you have a soul. Your soul is the only one you are ever going to get. That's a profound thought. The soul that you are carrying around inside your body right now is the only thing that you presently have right now that you will carry with you into eternity. That. um, You'll carry that one part of you into endless time. Your body is going to die. Yes, it'll be resurrected, but it'll be a new body. It's your soul that 10 billion years from now, the soul that you have, that's what you'll still be keeping. You say, what is a soul? We often think, think in terms of the Looney Tunes version of the soul. Wiley Coyote's plan to finally put an end to the Roadrunner backfires, and instead he's blown up by his own stick of dynamite. <laughs> what happens at that point in the cartoon? This translucent Wiley Coyote figure 
starts to you know, float up from his deceased body. It has wings and it's carrying a harp and the road owner watches and beep beeps as Wiley strums his harp and flies away. What is a soul? Well, I'll take a stab at it. I don't know that this is the best answer, but this is what I was able to come up with. I think we as human beings probably have four parts to us, a will, a mind, a body, and a soul. A will, which is what the freedom, the capacity that we have to make decisions, to choose, yes, no, this, that. A will, a mind, kind of obvious, our mind, although you know, that's a real interesting philosophical question. What is the mind? But for our, our purposes, you know, the mind is our thinking. It includes our feelings. Our bodies, which are, they come full of appetites, trained by habits, both of which, through which, we end up you know, behaving. Our behavior comes from our bodies. And then we have souls. And what I'm going to maintain is that the soul is what ties all of those parts together. The soul is the, the life center of human beings. And in a healthy soul, the body has been trained by the uh, trained to obey the will. The will has learned to choose what the mind knows to be good. All the parts of the mind, body, will are working in harmony together. We're at peace with God. We feel that peace internally. And then the unhealthy soul is the complete opposite. There is a lack of integration with with those parts. There's disorder and chaos. And we feel the disorder and chaos inside a, an unhealthy soul. The Bible speaks about souls. You can actually talk to your soul. We just did in Psalm 42. Why are you downcast? Oh, my soul. We do a lot of soul talk in, this, in uh, churches. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee. And what's interesting about those hymns is that if you replace the word self for soul, they don't work. Jesus, lover of myself, let me to thy bosom fly. It just doesn't, doesn't ring right. Then sings myself, my Savior God to thee. It just <laughs> that doesn't work. I, I wonder if... That the soul and the self may be two different things. Or maybe we're just playing in, in semantics. Uh, how, is it, how does a soul differ from the human spirit? Well, that's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. You know, oftentimes we'll talk about, have you ever heard the expression, that's a spirited child? Well, what do we mean by that? That's a, chi- that's a spirited woman over there. It's somebody who has a lot of energy and go get them and spunk spirit may refer to the power the energy that comes from our wills but whether or not that's the case to boil it all down the soul is the life center of the human being the soul is the here's my definition the immaterial eternal essential you the soul is the immaterial eternal essential you. The soul is the deepest dimension of your existence. And so so your soul doesn't just go on forever. It is eternal, but it, it, it does that, but it's essentially 
who you are right now. And it's very easy for us to imagine the spectrum of soul health out there today. I mean, over here, you've got a, a healthy soul. There's integration. There's peace. There's harmony. Over here, you have a diseased and malfunctioning soul. And every one of us is carrying that inside. Wouldn't it be interesting if we had, uh, if Apple came out with a soul camera as an app, right? You just, instead of your typical selfie, you could take a, a soul selfie. That sounds, what was that? A soulie. Yeah. And you could get a picture of what, what's going on. We'll get a little introspective here. What would you see if we took a picture of your soul this morning? Is it a picture of health, of youth, of vitality? Is it strong? Is it bright? Is it, is it wonderful? What would come out in the dark room when the photograph of your soul is, is developed? And what I find is we don't like to even really think about that. Isn't it interesting, when somebody asks us the question, how are you doing? Always, pretty much always, our answer, it centers around our external outer world. Caught myself doing it this week, Friday. Friend asked me, "Uh, Brad, how are you doing? And I just immediately launch into, well, this is happening, and my kids are doing this. This is kind of going, this is going okay, and I'm I'm a little nervous about about this, but always, the, it's the visible and the obvious, the unseen, hidden, soulish parts of ourselves do not come up in our descriptions. Probably, now I recognize that when somebody asks you, how are you doing? They don't always expect you to, they don't expect you to bear their soul to them. But, I mean, we don't bear our souls hardly to anybody. because so we don't want to pay any attention to it. What would the picture look like? Remember in the Disney version of The Little Mermaid, the, the picture of the mer-creatures who sold their souls to the octopus lady Ursula. And there they are on the bottom of the ocean. I, I was thinking, what words could I use to describe the, the souls of the mer-creatures? They're, they're kind of like these shriveled mushrooms with faces crying out. I honestly thought, if you probably... If you are on that end of the spectrum, you don't even want to think about what your soul looks like today. Enter the metaphor that Jesus gives with, I am the vine. The vine, I think, has so much to say about our soul. Let's do a little bit of background, ever so briefly. Why does Jesus call himself the vine? The vine was a very noteworthy metaphor from the Old Testament, a a recurrent image in the Old Testament that was used to refer to the people of God. Israel is always called the vine. Psalm 80. O Lord, you have brought a vine out of Egypt and you have planted it into the land. Other vine places. Ezekiel 15, Ezekiel 17, Jeremiah 2, Isaiah 5, maybe the most famous of them, the vine is Israel. The tragedy of the vine illustrations, the Old Testament, is almost every time the vine is mentioned, it's always in the context of the failure of the vine to produce any fruit. The vine is either just pure leaves, 
It's leafy and barren. Or the metaphor gets tweaked a little bit, and instead of producing grapes, the, the vine ends up producing sour grapes or bad grapes. So that's the case in Isaiah 5, where the sour grapes, the wild grapes, include greedy real estate expansion, the corrupting power of riches, drunken partying and debauchery, and on, on and on it goes. Jesus chooses this because of a well-known metaphor, and he's saying... Now things are going to be different with my people. Now the people who are connected to me will produce good grapes, good fruit from healthy souls that glorify God if they only do one thing. What is that one thing he repeats multiple times in the passage? If they abide in me. Abide. That's the word. That's the key word. That's the one that... I wanted to focus on this morning. Um, abide is not a word that we use very frequently. When was the last time you said abide? <laughs> what if I were to yell out from the pulpit this morning, everybody in the sanctuary, here's what I want you to do. I want you to abide in this room until I come back. Well, even though we don't use the word abide very frequent, often, you have a pretty good understanding of what I was saying. I would be telling you in that instance to remain here. To keep calm. Don't be bouncing off of the walls. Just rest. Relax. Stay put. That's what it means to abide in this room. But what does it mean to abide in me? Just a few chapters prior, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going away, guys. I'm going to leave you. What does it mean to abide in a person that is gone and you cannot see? And that's where I think the metaphor with the branch and the grapevine comes, uh, comes into play. I think you've got a branch, a grapevine. When the two are connected, we would agree that that is a very intimate, maybe intimate's not the right word, a very complete connection that's taking place. Branch, Grapevine. It is not superficial. It is not, it is not artificial. When they are attached, they share, and I don't know the technical term for this in viticulture, but they share the same internal tubing. Like the tubing that goes, you could say they share the same veins. The veins or the tubing or whatever the technical term is that runs from the vine extends out into the branch and so the juices of the vine are the very things that are flowing in and through and into the branch. The branch draws upon the very sap, if there's such a thing, a sap in, in vines. But the very juices are what the branches drink from. We go with the metaphor a little further. The vine has, the vine goes to places the branches cannot go. The branches go to places the vine cannot go. The, the vine has roots that go deep into the soil. Right? They go underground. They have access to all the moisture and nutrients of the soil. They tap into all the riches of the earth, and they pump that life-giving richness out into the branches. The branches, what's the role of the branches? Well, the vine is pumping. And the branches, all they're supposed to do is just stay there. Sit still. <laughs> Soak it in. That's their job to... 
No, eventually they're going to blossom and grow, and there'll be enlargement and fruitfulness. But in the, in the meantime, they're just supposed to sit still and suck it all in. Well, Jesus Christ has roots, doesn't he? Um, where do the roots of Jesus Christ go? Well, they happen to go into another source of limitless riches. His, his roots like run deep down into the Trinity. And you could say that the Jesus, he takes the, the fullness of Trinitarian life and love, and that's what he's pumping out into the branches of his people. I love that image. Trinitarian life is what is flowing through to you. But as I said before, the, the vine goes to places that the branches can't go. The branches go to places the vines cannot go. Um, the, the vine goes into, the, into the, the ground. The branches go out across the land. <laughs> like the vine would never get all the way over there. The vine, and the vine, I mean, the branches do things that the vine can't do. The center stem of the vine is not going to bear any kind of fruit. But it's the branches that go out, and the branches spread out into the land, into the world, and they bring fruit to places way out there that are presently fruitless. And Jesus said the key to, and I'm sure there's elements of the metaphor I'm not like getting and unpacking, but if, if you're following with me so far, there's a lot there. And the key to it is simply abide, 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 abide. Dallas Willard is one of the, probably one of the most influential 20th century spiritual discipline guru types. Dallas Willard wrote tons of books. He was a philosophy professor at Southern Cal, and he ended up, he died and went to be with the Lord a few years back. He wrote a lot of books on spiritual disciplines and, and growing. And so one guy, somebody goes to Dallas Willard near the end of his life and says, Dallas, um, what must I do to keep my soul healthy? I recognize it's really important. What do I do to keep myself soul healthy? And Dallas's answer, it was John Ortberg, the pastor who went to him. He said, John, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. John Ortberg thought, was, whoa, that's, that's good advice. Thanks, Dallas. Anything else? I've got my notebook out and my pen. I'm ready to write down. Do you have any more spiritual nuggets for me that I can? He says, no, that's it. Nothing else, really, John. He said, hurry. I, I, at the end of my life, I've come to see that hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in the Christian church today. Hurry, more than anything else, is desouling people. Hurry is killing the thing that you're going to carry with you into eternity. That's a powerful statement. He said, for you to be well, your soul needs to be with God. And at least as far as I survey Christian churches these days, that's not happening in many lives. Orberg goes on, why do I lead a church full of people who believe all the right things about God, who even read their Bibles, who even pray, even daily, but they don't seem to be growing much. And he said, oh, well, that must be it. They're just choked out with busyness. Um, now, 
when I look at you, I see, I do see a lot of busyness. Now, I try to keep a very, I want to keep a charitable interpretation of your lives and never um, reach false conclusions because I'm given just a very small window into everybody's lives. And I try to remind myself, I say, Brad, God creates every one of us differently. Every one of us have different constitutions and capacities to deal with the hustle and bustle of life. Just because you couldn't handle that level of frenetic activity doesn't mean that they can't. Uh, that, uh, they might be able to, they might, they're probably doing fine. I bet they're managing their busyness really well. At least that's what I tell myself. Am I lying to myself? <laughs> Only God knows. That's what I come back to. Only he knows, and to a certain extent you, but especially him, knows how healthy or, or malfunctioning is your soul today. So ultimately, I think that the biggest primary challenge that you, you face before eternity is to take really good care of your souls. The beauty of this passage is that if you take good care of your soul, it's not selfish, that the end result is that you will bear fruits, that, that will, the fruit will be God's gift, your gift, God's gift to the world, and that you will bring a blessing to your friends, your family, your coworkers, your business, your community, your team, your school, your city, your church. If you, do a, if you take good care of your soul, then you're going to bless the rest of us. It also never hurts to remember that your kids are not going to play in the NBA or in the WNBA. And if they get a B in biology, so what? It's not devastating. But what is devastating is when we spend the majority of our time focusing on the grade point average or the 24 points per game, and 10 million years from now, nobody's going to remember her prom dress. But the soul they have right now is the soul that they will have 10 billion years from today. Lord have mercy, you know, to us, on us parents, gee. Of course, if you don't do a good job of taking care of your soul, if you don't place emphasis on soul care, I tip my hat to you. If you've got your gym membership and you're in there five days a week, you know, working your, your abs, great. <laughs> but, I mean, if you don't put the emphasis there, how are your kids ever going to, to know that that's like this, the essential part of life? Now, when I read those words from Ortberg and uh, Dallas Willard, I thought, bingo, that's it. Abide, busyness, that's, that's God's word to us today. And that's John 15, I think, as it is applied in our day and age. Now, I want to move on because there are two other very important parts of this passage. Uh, verse 2. And these are not the most pleasant parts of the passage, but... I mean, they're, they're there, so we should deal with them. Uh, our, my father, verse 2, my father cuts off every branch in me. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. So there's the warning, the first part of that, the warning to false Christians. He cuts off 
unfruitful branches. In other words, you can be baptized, you can profess faith in Jesus, and you can have at least a visible connection to Jesus, and maybe you can even have something a little bit more than a visible connection. If we looked at Judas, it seems like Judas has, he has some significant connection to Jesus, but, but ultimately, there's no blossoms, there's no fruit, which if there's no blossoms and fruit, that means there's not a vital connection that comes from the vine to that branch. And then one day, either in this life or the next, that person will be cut off. In this case, the false Christian who missed the vital union with Jesus Christ will, well, there's a reference here of, in verse 6 to hell. If anyone does not abide in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. It's dead wood. If it lacks the vitality of the stem, therefore God, the vine dresser, will judge it. And if you want to read the most important vine passage in the Old Testament, you go back to Isaiah chapter 5. As I said, they're bearing wild and sour grapes and one of the characteristics of God's people in that day their evaluations their moral evaluations their evaluations of good and bad are are so opposite of God's true evaluation of things they're so blind to their lack of moral judgment and God says I'm going to send a boar to run into the vineyard and just tear the whole thing to pieces. Now, I hope that I am wrong. I really do. But it seems to me that there are Christians out there today who are, who are likewise, morally backwards, um, who say God sanctions and blesses what he actually condemns. And I hope that I'm entirely wrong, but it wouldn't surprise me if... I mean, those are the metaphors that the Bible gives us. The vineyard that is ravaged the branches that, that are diseased and they're dead wood and they're cut off and they're burned. The other important aspect in verse 2, the second half of verse 2, says every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. We, I, I am no viticulturalist. I do not know anything about the science of vineyards and Wineries. I've never been out to St. Ch- is it Chappelle? Is that how they? I just buy the cheap wine. I don't know how to pronounce it. St. <laughs> Chappelle Vineyards out in Nampa there. To, I think I would enjoy, or Caldwell maybe, I would enjoy learning about the science of vineyards and, and vines. But I know something about the science or the, the pruning of rose bushes. So even if you don't know anything about vines, you know rose bushes. You've seen a rose bush that's never been pruned before. What is that like? Ah, it's a, it's a scraggly, twisted mess. Um, the, the, it's so thick in there that the very thorns of the bush choke out any ability of the bush to produce you know, great roses. So it'll produce a little few uh, small roses, but, but the bush, it grows in on itself and it chokes out the light it's so tangled up in itself that it no longer... So what does a, a, a gardener have to do? They've got to get the pruning shears out, and they have to start to open it up, basically. Just cut it up 
so that the rose bush might eventually be its true self, be the rose bush that, that the, the gardener wants it to be. I've, I've got to assume that some of those same principles are at work. The gardener prunes. In the passage, it never tells us what, how specifically he prunes. What do you think? How do you think the gardener prunes us? I think it's by adversity. I think it's by suffering, adversity, hardship. I think he prunes us through financial stress. He prunes us through bad job performance review, unexpected health scares, an unfair professor's grading system, you know, painful family interactions, church problems, church infighting, um, a breakup, a loss of a relationship, a rebellious teenager. I mean, all of... I could go on and on and on. The one thing that we do know about any pruning is that, man, it hurts. To get cut on, it hurts so bad. Our father's pruning knife kills. It hurts so bad. At the moment that we're being pruned, we just want to curse and scream, God, this is killing me. Why are you doing this? To which I think we hear a voice in reply in chapter 15. He says, this is cleansing you. Remember what I said at the beginning, the pruning and cleansing are play on words. This is cleansing you. I'm opening you up to greater fruitfulness. Now, I know that all experiences of suffering don't perfectly fit that metaphor. Why is it that some... I mean, some of you, I have watched you go through this. You're like, Lord, I have nothing left for you to cut on. I am so cut down. I'm fine with pruning shears. This has been a weed whacker. I just feel decimated. Um, why, why is it that God's pruning of some of, some of us is, is like so devastating? Um, I don't know. I don't know why he prunes that way and prunes others so much less. All I can say is keep abiding in Christ. Maybe you're a bit discouraged like this guy. Um, maybe you're, you're coming out of youthful idealism into uh, realism. Um, he says, when I was 25, I believed I could change the world at 25. At the age of 41, I've come to the realization that I cannot even change my own oil, <laughs> let alone change my wife or my kids to say nothing of the world. The older I get, the more I realize that I am not able to manufacture outcomes the way that I thought I could, either in my own life or in other people's lives. Have you discovered this? Many unfulfilled dreams. Uh, maybe ongoing relational tension. The loss of friendships. Hard marriages. Rebellious teenagers. The, the death of loved ones. Whatever it is for you, if you live long enough and you lose enough and you suffer enough, the idealism of your youth, it fades and leaves behind the reality of life. Uh, life has a way of proving to me that I'm not on the constantly moving forward escalator of progress that I thought I was when I was 25. Instead, my life has looked a lot more like this, you know, the, the three steps forward, four steps back, 
Try and fail. Fail a little more. Two steps forward, only one step back. A little bit of success. Every year I get better at some things. I get worse at others. Some areas remain stubbornly static. But if this sounds like a depressing sentiment, I want you to know that it isn't. I am grateful for the way that God has opened my eyes, sort of dashed my idealism, but has replaced it with a realism about the extent of his grace and love, which is so much bigger than I ever imagined at the age of 25. Indeed, the smaller you get, like the smaller life makes you, the easier it is for Christians to see the grandeur of grace. And while I am far more incapable than I may have initially thought, I've discovered he is infinitely more capable than I ever hoped. The way I hear him speaking there is is maybe a realization. I can't change you. I can't change my circumstances but like that's not the center of, that's not what's running my life. It's my soul that's running my life. And what I can do is to abide in Christ, abide in his love. He'll talk about that later. We're going to actually do the rest of John 15 a little uh, next week. So parts of this passage I didn't hit on today, we'll do it next week. Abide in my love. Sit still and just calm down. And Be strengthened by Trinitarian life and your soul will be healthier. Um, It's very important that you do this because it is the only one that you got. And you're going to be carrying it with you for a very long time. And if you are a branch and you know that you are attached to a titanic-sized vine with roots that go down that deep, um, then what do you do? You just sit still and soak it up. If you're a branch and you know that you have tubing this large, juices these this succulent. I'm killing the image at this point. But, but eventually fruit is going to come. It'll come. And Jesus says, and this, what does he say there? Uh, verse 8, and this is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Amen.